Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Inflation, recession, stagflation. Just what the hell is going on? Hi there. Thanks for tuning in to another Real Vision podcast. So what the hell is going on? We all want to know. Here at Real Vision, we've debuted a special series called Global Recession. Is everyone wrong? We've called on the world's best experts, including Juliette de Klerk, David Rosenberg, Peter Zion, Pierre Andoran, and many more to try and help us make sense of things. These real experts will be giving Real Vision members in-depth, long-form analysis on the real stuff that's happening. Best of all, you can get access to all 14 days of Global Recession, Is Everyone Wrong?, for just $1. Yep, $1. So head to realvision.com slash global recession. That's realvision.com slash global recession to join us on this epic two-week journey of discovery. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is today, Friday, May 27th, 2022. And uh, I'm Andreas Steno Larsen, and I'm very happy to host my first version of, uh, of the Daily Briefing here. Today, I'm uh, joined by Raul Pell. Uh, so how are you doing, Raul? I'm fantastic. And look, I'm really pleased you're doing this. This should be fun. It'd be great. It will be great. Um, Raul, it's been another, I'd say, decent day for risk assets today. NASDAQ is up, I think, 3%-ish. Uh, crude oil is trading above $119 a barrel. And uh, we still have bond yields sort of flatlining or even falling. Um, to me, this may be a hint that markets have sort of started to look past the inflation scare and look towards growth instead. What do you make of all of this we see in markets this week? I, I kind of think that we need to be careful because this month-end rebalance, right? Everyone, we, yeah. we were told it was going to be huge. I had technical signals that said the market could bounce on a shorter term basis, like daily stuff. My weekly stuff still says there's more downside. So I'm not sure whether this becomes the false hope or it feeds on itself. I mean, who the hell knows? But there's a massive rebalance going on, which yeah. is why it's all squeezing. It's a long weekend in the US where so everyone had to jam the order book in today. So the question is, is, does it sell off after Memorial Day? Does it continue to go for a bit and then sell off? Or is that, was that the low? It feels that I've looked at past episodes of all of this, you know, when, when the Fed are pivoting or the economy's weakening, bond yields tend to come down further before that happens because we've only just really pivoted. Sure, break-evens have come down quite a lot, but mm. you know, bond yields themselves have only just started. So I feel like it's too early to have the kind of celebration of the Fed are going to pivot and everything else. But I think that's all coming. Yeah, I think that's the million dollar question right now, whether the Fed will pivot this year. Uh, and if we look at the most important data point that we've received today, in my view, uh, the core PCE prices, then I actually think that we have some compelling evidence 
that inflation is starting at least to flatline or even outright fall in year-over-year terms, right? Uh, we are basically past the peak in year-over-year terms, if you ask me. What do you make of the inflation picture and the consequences for the Federal Reserve when you watch these uh, data prints out today? Yeah, look, I, I agree with you, and I've been following what you've been saying on Twitter. Look, I think the inflation peak is in. Mm. Uh, just the year-on-year comps, let alone structural inflation, I think the year-on-year comps are going to be, we'll see inflation come down pretty sharply. Mm. Now, I also think there's massive demand destruction going on in the economy too. When I look at monetary conditions, not just using the Goldman Sachs index, but if I add in, so if I use it, the rate of change of mortgages, two-year rates, oil, gasoline, and the dollar, that's the largest monetary tightening in all recorded history that's underway. Um, And I put a piece out on Real Vision today, it should come out shortly, about some of this stuff. And I think we have the potential to set up to see negative inflation next year. I think the one thing that needs to happen for that to occur is for crude oil to fall. It doesn't have to fall a lot, but then the year-on-year comps by March of next year, crude oil is going to be a massive negative year-on-year. So, Mm. and and that's not going against the crude oil story, which is the structural supply issue. It only has to trade lower for a period of time down to 70 bucks, 80 bucks. And before you know it, the inflation number absolutely collapses. So I'm kind of with you on that. Yeah. And we've even had a member of the um, Federal Reserve Committee out saying that there is a possibility of a pause from September and onwards. Uh, And of course, the market will look uh, at such comments and and try to uh, get a grab of what's going on within the Federal Reserve. Are they already now pondering whether to to pause or not? But one thing I wanted to touch upon when you mention the word demand destruction is to which extent various asset classes have priced in this ongoing demand destruction that we're currently faced with, because I think that's a very fair assessment of what's going on. Uh, And uh, I made a chart earlier today on the um, relationship between equities and the ISM manufacturing index in the US. It's about Um, 47 right now, it's pricing. Yeah, exactly. Um, So the interesting thing here is whether the recession is already called by equities, first of all, and secondly, whether bonds will follow. What do you make of that? Well, like you, I map out a ton of these relationships. Mm. Equities, copper, inventories to sales, a lot of the forward-looking stuff, all is recession. Some of Mm. them are severe recession. Anything that has monetary conditions in, uh, PPI inverted versus ISM, it lags. Um, That's putting the ISM at 30. Um, So it feels that most of the risk assets have priced it. There are two that haven't, pretty Mm. much only two. One is oil and one is bond market. So the bond market has been following basically oil's rate of change more than it has anything else. And I can understand that because the inflation fixation. But I think that that evaporates. And we've seen a very similar setup. I've done a lot of historical analysis of these, what causes the Fed to, to change path. So I started with... 1974. Yeah. 1974 was very similar to now. We had, a, we had a supply issue in oil, which was the Arab oil embargo. We had prices rise. CPI was rising. The Fed were hiking. Um, the dollar was rallying. And then growth collapsed. And the ISM went from 56 to 30 in four months. Ooh. That's what I'm getting in my data to su- suggest is possible. The next one was uh, 84. 
and the Fed cut in the middle of that with inflation still up. They cut as soon as the ISM touched 50. Same in 1984, same in um, the 2000s, same in 2001, um, same in 2018. So I think the, the key thing is here is if the ISM comes below 50, they start to worry about the jobs mandate. And we're already hearing the tech companies saying we're going to lay off people. Amazon said they were wildly overstaffed. So the last shoe to drop, it happened in 2018, 2001. Um, and I think it was, yeah, obviously in 1974, was the last shoe to drop was the oil market. Yeah, I think that's to come as well. <laughs> I, I even saw, uh, referring to, to what you said about tech companies, uh, the Swedish company Klarna laying off people with a pre-recorded message this week. Uh, I mean, <laughs> what was going on there? Uh, but I think you're absolutely right that we've seen a peak uh, in um, in employment already now as well. Uh, or at least we start, we're starting to see the early signs of a slowdown of, of the employment cycle as well. And we know that that cycle lacks uh, a lot of the indicators that we've already touched upon. I think the key question here, Raul, uh, and I wanted you to pick your brain on that topic as well, is whether the Fed will be more hesitant in pivoting due to the fact that we are still running clearly so, above the inflation target. So, so what do you came, make of that discussion? Yeah, so this came up at the round table. There's a hmm. narrative which is, well, if inflation is still high, we need to see it coming down to 3% or whatever before they do hmm. anything. So I went back and checked every time in history. That never happens. In 2001, they were cutting all the way through from the from oil going from 100 bucks to 140 bucks. 2018, they were cutting. Um, they paused and had cut with the oil price coming up. Um, most of these examples, when you go back, even in the 1970s, inflation was still going up and oil was still going up um, while they were cutting. Mm. And it, in, in 1974, they were cutting from about July and really inflation didn't roll over till early the next year. So I, I think it's a red herring. I think they will focus on inflation, but they realize that demand is the bigger driver. And as soon as demand starts to showing that it's coming down, i.e. the economy starts shrinking or heading that way, that's when they pivot. And that was 2018 in a nutshell. ISM touched 50 and they stopped. Yeah. And obviously, if you want to sort of front run this development within the Federal Reserve, then you need to be on the watch for a couple of triggers. Uh, maybe the most important trigger for such a reversal is the growth cycle. And we basically agree, it seems, that the growth cycle is headed down clearly. Uh, but the second trigger that you will look for is probably the peak in inflation. Uh, and we may have seen a peak in inflation in year-over-year -year terms, at least I think so. So are there anything uh, that holds you back from saying that now is the time to bet on a more dovish Fed via buying bonds? No, I've bought bonds. I bought two years and 10 years because mm. um, I don't know whether the curve steepens or flattens because it always gets a bit complicated. <laughs> so 2018, it flattened first, then steepened, um, then flat, went negative again and then went up. So I don't know. But yes, I don't see any reason why not. And the bond market's kind of telling us this, mm. that A, the gr growth is now slowing and inflation's coming off. And it's a very simple, why I love bonds is people in the bond market have one job to look at two things, growth and inflation. While in the equity market, you need to look at all sorts of stuff, including human sentiment and all of the 
bullshit that goes along with equities. But this is really simple. So the bond market usually gets this bit right. So it basically got rid of inflation itself by going up without the Fed actually really being involved, apart from jawboning. And my guess is it's going to start pricing out growth and inflation really fast. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Uh, in your monthly update, I also noticed that uh, you talk a bit about demographics. Uh, and when we talk about bonds, I think it's very tricky to avoid a debate on uh, demographics. So uh, throughout this recent rally in interest rates, I've received a lot of pushback when I've tried to to compel, uh, to tell a compelling story to people that over the three to five year horizon, demographics still matter for uh, interest rates. Um, can you make it, maybe walk us through your thoughts on demographics going uh, three, five years forward? Yeah, so if I look at the, the, the demographics of Europe and the US, but let's focus on the US. Mm. The baby boom cohort is, what, average age of 70 now. So some of them are in the workforce, particularly in part-time jobs. There's some in full-time jobs in the workforce. They're coming out of the workforce um, and they have to go into retirement. So firstly, retirees tend to own more bonds than equities because you don't want your pension falling 50% in a recession. Secondly, um, if you don't know how long you're going to live for and you've got a fixed amount of capital, you tend to be careful in how much you spend. I've seen my parents go through this when they retired. They're like, their spending went down a lot. So the consumption of that cohort goes down. But they're also saddled with debt. So that dynamic tends to create lower growth. And I look at the labor force participation rate, and you can extrapolate it going forwards. And basically, it's the trend of GDP. It's the trend of inflation. It's the trend of velocity of money. It's the trend of pretty much everything of our economic lifetimes. And it's driven by this old co cohort. And so that means that it's almost impossible to generate inflation for extended periods of time. You might get it from a supply issue. You might get it from you know, some some demand issue, you know, we had it a bit from China in the 2000s. There's a new demand source in the global economy. I don't see that right now. Sure, there's some ESG infrastructure spend that could do something a bit. Um, but I don't really see it. The onshoring, the reonshoring re of supply chains, you know, yes, maybe. But, you know, the, the flip side of that is none of those factories employ people, they employ robots. But, you know, go and look at the Tesla factories. It's incredible how few people they need. And so I just see the relentless uh, rise of technology, plus this old demographic cohorts that's going to take another 10, 15 years to work its way through, yeah. can only generate slower economic growth over time. And that needs the central banks to run negative real rates because of all the debt that they've done to offset it. Um, and yeah, that, and, and I haven't seen anything in the picture that's changed that. There is an argument that some put together that, that they're going to release their capital and spend it all, and that's inflationary. I just don't see it from the behavior of all the retirees. When I lived in a beach town in Spain, it's full of retired people. And that they start, you know, my dad went from buying, you know, you know 50 pound bottles of champagne to fighting in the supermarket over with his friends who could find the cheapest. Spanish carver, could they find a decent one for three euros? Now, that's the mindset when you have a finite pool and you don't know how long you live for. So it's really important demographics. 
Yeah, I, I have to agree with that conclusion. Uh, and I mean, it, it brings us to the discussion that uh, has been ongoing, I guess, for the past year or so, whether we are entering a 1970s kind of scenario again on inflation. Um, on demographics, I think one key um, change since the 1970s is that we haven't got that roaring comeback of the labor supply that we had in the 1970s, uh, women entering the job market, etc. Uh, that made for a whole different climate when it comes to structural growth compared to what we see right now. And when we're talking about demographics, uh, I actually did a study on demographics across regions recently. Uh, I would actually argue that the demographics in the US look decent compared to the demographics of Europe and in particular China. Um, so let's touch upon that a bit, because if you look at the, the um, demographic projections for China, they look absolutely awful. Um, no matter whether you ask the World Bank, the UN, or if you try to, to, to come up with projections oneself. Uh, what do you make of the current situation in China and the spillovers to, um, to potential growth in, in the Western world, both short term and also over the medium term? Yeah, look, China cannot be a driver of economic growth in the way that it was in the past. You know, we think of like, you talked about the 1970s, there was a double demand shock of everybody hitting 30 at the same time, buying their first house, first car, having their first kid, all of that stuff, and women coming into the labor force, right? It was the biggest demand shock in history. China came onto the world stage and globalized. Massive demand shock for the economy. It was great. It, you know, they re rebuilt the economy. But the problem is with an aging population now, your trend rate of growth collapses. And they know it. Now, you can try and use technology to offset it, but it's yet to be seen whether we can do it because nobody's done it at scale. Japan's not managed it yet, and they're probably the world leader in robotics. But that's what you need. You need a robot workforce if you want to raise productivity per capita if you don't have many people. Yeah. So it's a really interesting thing. And maybe that does happen. But China itself doesn't have the economic growth that it has. Doesn't mean it doesn't have the economic power because you know they, they did make a lot of progress in the years leading up to now. So it depends how smart they are with it, but it, it does also slow down. A lot of Southeast Asia has the same demographics, South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, they've all got old populations. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, Southeast Asia is not gonna be the engine of growth. And it hasn't been, as you, as you know, you look at the chart of Kospi or Taiwan, they've just done nothing for decades now. Yeah. And, uh, Frankly, entering this year, uh, I had a debate with, for example, Darius Dale, who's also a, a regular on, on Real Vision, on whether China could be the dark horse in a positive sense on growth this year, because they basically had the opportunity to reflate the uh, global economy again, if they um, basically flooded markets with liquidity again in China. But they they've refrained from doing so. Uh, they are only saving domestic markets, it seems to me. Uh, they're, they're not interested in, in, in trying to save the global momentum. So not even from China. Uh, we won't even get positive signals on growth from China, in, in, in my humble no, opinion. No, I mean, credit growth in China year on year is, start, is turning up now, finally. Yeah. So it, it's a stabilizing factor. As you said, they're not doing unlimited QE or anything that's going to rescue everybody else. They rescue themselves. I, th I think you're dead right there. Yeah. Exactly. So by the end of the day, it's, it's hard to come up with a positive story on, uh, on demand growth over the coming two, three quarters in, uh, in my so view. Here's the question yeah. for you then. I'm going to ask you yeah. a question is, so the other, the counter argument to our view 
yes is that there's a structural problem with commodities now my thought on that is yes but year-on-year -year rate of change is what matters so yes. it's very difficult for the oil price to have the same impact because it needs to double and double again but what, how do you think through that argument that people say yeah you don't get it inflation's here for much longer well, uh, I basically think that you're betting against gravity if you think that the oil price will keep inflating the CPI index overall uh, as a consequence of what you just depicted on on uh, the year-over-year -year, uh, growth rates declining sort of uh, in, in the natural state, right? Uh, but I think there is a compelling argument in terms of the supply side of, uh, of commodities, in particular in Europe. Um, so I'm, I'm born and raised in Denmark, still live in Scandinavia. Um, and it's fairly easy to see from the current ongoing debate uh, amongst politicians that we're actually willing to pay a lot to get rid of our um, uh, sort of connection to Russia when it comes to natural res uh, gas and, and, and resources in general. Uh, and, and therefore, I think there is a larger willingness to accept inflation within the population than, than compared to usual. Uh, so that could, of course, be a game changer when it comes to the supply side of that particular asset yes uh, but right. you destroy the demand side right because yes because if commodity prices and inflation run high and wages don't follow suit then all it means is andreas spends less on fancy bottles of wine on the weekend yeah it's already happening <laughs> <laughs> as we speak um i i mean i guess it's the same in the u.s it's very very easy to see when you go in the supermarket or on a restaurant that prices are up um uh, and we're starting to see that in in um, in demand, right? Um, so, I I basically think myself that uh, the best cure uh, against high prices is high prices. Um, it works, um, and and that's also why I basically turned around on my view on the Federal Reserve uh, throughout spring here. Uh, I was very very uh, vocal throughout last year that the Federal Reserve would have to do something about the inflationary pressures. But now I'm not as convinced that they need to do a whole lot more uh, to, to contain demand because, I mean, demand is already slowing. Um, and by the end of the day, that's what they need. They need demand destruction and they will get it uh, even without doing a lot more from now. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, if I look at I'm starting to err towards the balance of probabilities are for a really fast collapse in the economy. Um, like 1970, where it goes from 56 in the ISM, where we kind of are today, to negative something big. Now, negative 30 is pretty extreme, but the tightening of financial conditions has been so big that it's possible. Now, it's probably going to be short-lived, but I think if there's one shock out there, because people are waiting, who's going to blow up, what's going to happen? I think if there's one shock, I think it's the economy implodes, and it happens really fast. Now, you know, as you know, we deal with probabilities and not certainty. So I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen, but it's definitely a big risk to me. Mm. Uh, well, I wanted to ask you a few questions that we've received from the audience as well, uh, because we've basically agreed, the two of us, that uh, the timing could be right to buy bonds uh, and that uh, interest rates could be um, beheaded down. So the question here is whether duration-linked equities will finally catch a bit as a result of that. What do you make of that discussion? I have been buying the over, I've been averaging in over time the growth long end of tech because I believe that the tech adoption of AI, robotics, EV, everything is exponential in nature. And therefore, you want to be involved in the secular trends. I like trading with the secular trend and not against it. 
and a lot of this stuff is down 75%. So I'm starting to think, you know, this is interesting because if inflation comes lower and rates come lower, they should perform really well. Um, you know, and there's some crazy valuations, you know, stuff like Coinbase trades for nothing these days. And, you know, it basically needs to make one decision, which is does does um, digital asset network adoption continue or not? And if it continues, then it's wildly underpriced because these things are logarithmic trends. So there's a lot of stuff like that out there right now that's really interesting. Yeah, and and maybe we will get a reversal of the sort of intra-sector bets that we've seen in equity space over the course of uh, of 2022 here. Uh, it's been a, an ongoing story to be long value stocks versus growth stocks. But if we get this um, slight reversal of uh, long bond yields lower, then I guess it makes sense to at least, uh, from a relative perspective, start outweighing um, the tech sector yeah. versus, for example, value stocks again, right? Yeah, and if we get the kind of, realization that growth has fallen apart i think everything gets hit you know mm. it's that delta one moment where every place you think you're hiding in because it's done well like energy stocks suddenly take it on the chin we haven't had that moment yet we got a little bit close but i think there's the risk of that still and again it's not a certainty but i think that's going to come yeah one thing that we haven't touched upon yet is uh, the dollar uh, we've got a question here um, on the uh, DXYs of the broad dollar index, and it's, it's, it has actually been trading down over the past week here, um, despite Nasdaq rallying, for example. Uh, so what do you make of that? Is the dollar sort of decoupling from the development in U.S. equities of what's happening here? So, I mean, I was lucky to catch all of the dollar move. Um, yeah. I saw that coming, and then I actually took profits last week. I think it was last week. Because um, just technical basis. But what I've figured that as bond yields top out, the kind of lazy trade is to say, oh, bond yields down, therefore dollar down. That is a passing correlation, right? The dollar's really Bayesian. So it kind of shifts around what affects it all the time. So I figured, okay, we might see a bit of a washout now. I think as bond yields come down, the Japanese stop buying as many bonds. And therefore, it stops recycling it into the U.S. bond market. So, so um, the dollar therefore backs off somewhat. I accidentally, two weeks ago on a weekend, I was searching through my library for a book to read out in the sun by the pool. And I picked up The Alchemy of Finance by George Soros. And I hadn't read that for 20 years. And I probably didn't really understand it when I first read it. And it was his trading diary of 1985, which was a fascinating I won't go into it, it's a longer story, but amazing. But B, it was the period over the Plaza Accord. So 1984 was actually a very similar setup to now. Uh, very, very similar inflation. The Fed were hiking, blah, blah, blah. Um, they managed to avoid the recession that time around. But the dollar backed off as soon as the Fed started cutting. Yeah. And then exploded higher. And I fear for that still. I still fear a kind of very toxic dollar rally. It actually helps with a lot of things to do it because it gets rid of inflation entirely um, and brings down commodity prices, etc. But I have a fear that we've got that still out there. So I'm watching that closely because Soros wrote about it. He's like, you know, he, he saw the dollar was coming off and it took everybody by surprise when it absolutely ripped and they had to end up with the Plaza Accord and everybody needs to walk it lower. Yeah. 
We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. The question I always ask myself on the dollar uh, in the uh, case that uh, global growth is, is headed down as it is right now is very simply speaking, do I want to be short the US dollar into a global recession? Uh, and usually I end up concluding that uh, the answer to that is a no uh, for, for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, the main source, in my view, of dollar liquidity is not the Federal Reserve. It is actually global trade. Uh, so when the U.S. imports a lot of stuff from uh, from global partners, uh, they also automatically export dollar liquidity to, to, to those foreign markets. Uh, so when we have a slowdown or even an, an outright decline in, in global trade, then it is um, a clear signal of a shrinking liquidity base of dollars outside of U.S. borders. And it triggers the issue with the shortage of dollars offshore. Yes. So as global trade goes... Everybody with dollar debts scrambles because they don't have as much income to borrow money to pay for the debt. And what happens is it's a game of musical chairs. And this time around, it was Sri Lanka was the first one to not have a chair to sit down on. And that's the dollar shortage that plays out. And that's structural because the U.S. is 25 percent of global GDP, yet it's 87 percent of world trade is U.S. dollars. That mismatch keeps creating this problem. And that was the same issue in the 80s. And eventually it took all the central banks to get together to force it down. And yes. so, yeah, I think you're right. I think global trade is the big, is the big velocity for the, for the global dollar. Yeah. Velocity is maybe a better word than liquidity. Uh, but you're, you're absolutely right that um, it probably takes a coordinated effort from, uh, from central banks across the globe to, um, to really fight against that trend if we get uh, or if we enter a, um, a global recession on trade as well. Uh, yeah, I hadn't thought yeah. about that. This trade link is really interesting because if you think about the euro dollar market, it's basically funded by you know, the European banks, the Japanese banks, and maybe some Southeast Asian banks. And mm. what happens is if trade goes down, there's less deposits in there. They can't create as much euro dollars. And what happens is the market gets starved and the dollar screams higher. Yeah, that's a really clear linkage. Yeah. So uh, by the end of the day, I'm not giving up on my uh, dollar longs being based here in Europe. I think that's one of the best positions you can have on into this kind of environment when you are based in Europe, at least. Yeah, um, and I don't I don't disagree. I took some profits. I just yeah. thought, well, let's wait and see. I, I don't disagree. Um, a final part of this uh, question related to the dollar also referred to um, the developments that we've seen in uh, Ethereum and Bitcoin this week, because it's kind of an interesting divergence that we have tech stocks uh, rallying, while we still see a, a another drawdown in uh, Ethereum and Bitcoin. Do you have any explanation of, of, of this divergence, Ro? Yeah, it's month-end rebalance. <laughs> no. but the, the risk off and the elements of liquidity tightness and people needing to sell assets to realize capital is still playing out in crypto. And I think it goes further. You know, I think we've got, I think we've got a four-week window that is really scary, something between two and five weeks, call it that, that is going to be really scary. And I think once the month and rebalance finishes, it probably goes lower. And crypto is kind of telling us where the natural state of affairs is. You know, I think it's also interesting that bond yields, you know, see, keep coming down while equities kind of rallied. Normally, as equities rally, you'd be saying, well, the probability of the Fed needing to do something goes down. So, yeah, I think it, I, th I think it's written in the in the in the language of the market somewhere that risk still has to come lower first.
Yeah. So um, we're headed towards the end of today's program, but I wanted to wrap up a few things. Um, we tend to agree, Raul, that it is a good timing to buy bonds now. Uh, but we've had a, a couple of questions uh, on the chat here relating uh, to that particular question, because we are essentially staring directly into the Federal Reserve launching the actual quantitative tightening process. And here we are telling you to buy bonds <laughs> once the Fed uh, basically starts offloading them, them to the private market. Um, <laughs> a guy on the chat here is, <laughs> is saying, what's going on with that? <laughs> well, there's two things. One is CPI is a lagging indicator and the bonds need to be forward looking on growth and inflation. Yeah. So which is why you need to be doing the opposite of peak narrative. And the other reason is your chart that you produced in 2018 or 19, I think, I think it was 18, which was the quantitative tightening chart and QE chart and what it actually does to bond deals. I think it was your chart, wasn't it? Yeah. And basically it showed very clearly that periods of QT, for, by whatever mechanism, bond yields tend to rally. Now, I don't think they do QT for very long, but bonds will rally in economic weakness too. So this is really a sweet spot for bonds. Why do you think that, did you get to the bottom of why you think they rally in QT? Well, and I think the basic conclusion of my study uh, was the following. When the Federal Reserve leaves um, the inner part of the risk curve, curve up for grabs, you ultimately slowly but surely uh, start fishing the private market inwards on the risk curve as well. So you have basically treasury bonds on the very uh, inner part of the risk curve and you have, let's say, high yield bonds in Botswana or the very uh, far end of, of the risk curve. And as soon as the Fed Reserve actually allows a portion of the inner part of the risk curve um, up for grabs again for the private market. Then you slowly but surely move private investors inwards on that curve. So they start selling risk assets and buying bonds very mechanically. Uh, I think that's the reason why. Uh, and secondly, with bond deals at say 3% uh, in the 10 year space in various D10 countries now, it is starting to get a bit more compelling as a portfolio manager in a big institution to enter along again, right? Uh, so I think the appetite will slowly but surely come back as a consequence of the repricing that we've already seen, basically. So I don't think it's it's necessarily a bad idea to buy bonds into a QT scenario. No, uh, me neither. It's worked every time. It's also worked every time to buy them in, in, into peak inflation because peak inflation tends to be peak of cycle. And peak of cycle always means bond yields fall. You know, again, bond yields have, bond traders have two jobs, forward-looking economic growth, forward-looking inflation. That's it. Yeah. And they don't look at the now. Looking at the now is reading the newspaper from a year ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, I think that's a very good wrap-up wrap of today's discussion because um, essentially if we look towards the growth cycle, um, it seems to have peaked quite materially already now. Um, if we look at the forward-looking indicators for, for IS, ISM, they are essentially in, in recessionary territory, all of them. Uh, and even today, we got some, I'd say, early signals that inflation has already peaked as well. Um, so by the end of the day, end of the day, that is a pretty benign scenario for being long bonds. <laughs> and okay, final question. Yes. And I'm going to answer the same question. When do the Fed stop? When when does the the cutting? We don't know. But when do they stop 
Give me, give me your best guess date. Is it what Bostick said, September? Yeah, I mean, even even if he's not a voter, uh, I think he's been instrumental in uh, in, in guiding markets on uh, on the direction of the Federal Reserve. Uh, so I would actually put my trust in in Bostick and say September is the end of the hiking cycle. And I think it, if I'm right, that we get this risk flush, and the ISM. I think the ISM comes out next week. I think yes. it might be closer to 52 than the market's expecting 55. Mm. That's two points away from where they usually pivot. So by July, I think I, I kind of think there's a 50-50 chance that this is the last hike. Wow, the that June would be a material game changer if that's right. Rose. That's what I think. Uh, that's what I think is happening. I think the bond market's telling it's a little bit early. Yeah, but that's what I'm, that, that's that's my best guess. But at least we are clearly leaning the same way from a risk-reward perspective in terms of how to play this in markets. Yeah, it's because we also both look at the business cycle. And so yeah. it, it's clear. Yeah, growth is coming down. That's for sure. With those words, I will say thanks for watching the uh, Real Vision Daily Briefing with uh, me, Andreas Steno, and uh, the guest role pal. Maggie Lake will be back uh, next Tuesday with uh, Tony Greer as her guest. Uh, it should be a very exciting episode as well. Enjoy the long weekend and the Memorial Monday. Thanks for now. Thanks, everybody. And well done, Andreas, on your first daily briefing. Thank you. Yeah, I was DJing somewhere, woke up, and boom, I was in the metaverse. I didn't know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I think the coolest thing about NFTs is that for creators like me, for writers, and I'm sure, you know, across the spectrum of creativity, artists, photographers, or whatever, can have a community of people who are invested in it, who are with you on this ride, and now have access to you, and you have access to them. And that's just, to me, it's, it's revolutionary. Regulation has stymied the development or the adoption of digital assets by some of these large-scale financial institutions. Boston Consultant Group has a great stat on this. From 2009 to 2016, European and North American banks were collectively fined $321 billion by regulators. I mean, just an eye-watering number. I had lived through the financial crisis and predicted it. I had also lived through the European crisis and predicted it and had been in Europe and had to buy a generator and food and get cash out of the bank and keep it at home, right? That's how close we were in Spain to losing our entire banking system. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest and biggest names in finance.